Welcome to the new BYP podcast series. I'm going to continue my discussion of the Mormon concept of God and more on gods in general. The book edited by Gary James Bergera, Line Upon Line, Essays on Mormon Doctrine, published by Signature Books, 1989, has an essay by Dan Vogel, The Earliest Mormon Concept of God, page 17. The founding document of Joseph Smith's Church of Christ, its Articles and Covenants, declared in June 1830 that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is one God, infinite, and eternal without end. Because of ambiguity in this early Mormon creed, many outsiders concluded that the Mormon view of God was similar to Orthodox Trinitarian creeds. A growing number of scholars today recognizing that the Mormon concept of God changed as revelations expanded and clarified previous beliefs have suggested that the earliest Mormon doctrine, at least before 1835, was essentially Trinitarian. In contrast, I believe that Mormonism was never Trinitarian, but consistently preferred heterodox definitions of God. So I think a useful insight that Vogel had early on was this interpretation in Doctrine and Covenants section 20, verse 17, on God being infinite. And that's what I want to talk about in this podcast. However, well, this and several following podcasts, because here the rabbit hole goes very deep. There are serious and fatal problems with equating infinity with God, of any kind of God whatsoever, as I will share in these podcasts. Um, Joseph Smith attributing infinity to God is seriously a mistake so far as our current understanding of the mathematics of infinity and the theological ramifications of God's infinite regress of gods, uh, where he talked in the King Follett Discourse about Jesus having a father and his father having a father also, and where was there ever a father without, or where was there ever a son without a father? And this makes actually really good sense considering that the cosmology of Joseph Smith's day, the cosmos, was understood to be in a steady state. Uh, they, For all they knew, in the 1800s, the cosmos was perfectly infinite in all directions at all times. Um, they did not have the concept of the Big Bang. That came later with uh, certain evidentiary discoveries showing that the universe was expanding, and therefore extrapolating backwards, if it's getting larger and larger and larger looking forward into the past, then bringing it back, going backwards, it begins to shrink and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it gets to the point to where there's just a singularity. The universe is finite after all, and it did have a beginning. This wasn't known in Joseph Smith's day, so it makes sense that he is proposing an infinite chain of deities. Unfortunately, it's wrong. 
In order to do this, it is really helpful, and I know I'm going to ask you to bear with me, it's well done, but it's very helpful to get the background to infinity. If I just start jumping on talking about infinity and the problems, I'm afraid you will get lost. I'm not trying to insult anyone's intelligence here. So allow me to, in this podcast, to set the framework, give you the ground, prepare the ground, so that all the future podcasts will be very, very fruitful, and you will immediately see the issues with great clarity. I use James A. Lindsay, who has a Ph.D. in mathematics. His little book, dot, 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 infinity plus God equals folly. It is one of the most profound books I have ever read on this subject. I'm going to read to you from the beginning how we came into our modern understanding of infinity. That's what this podcast is about. It's very necessary. It's very useful. So, on page 10. And I'm going to skip and jump in this first chapter, this introductory chapter, because you don't need all the information. It isn't far off the mark to say that we simply cannot see infinity. (laughs) Indeed. Now, his view of Platonism holds that abstractions have meaningful reality in their own realm. And this, of course, is the realm of ideas. Now, this realm of ideas is independent of minds to think them. And Platonism is relevant because it leaves us confused between what is abstract and what is real. He does not accept the Platonic position. Specifically, he says, I feel that the realm of ideals at the center of Platonism is really an attempt to give abstractions a sense of reality, which is to say to reify them. Christianity and many other theistic religions are based specifically upon variants of Platonism. These religions see God as an extant being, one not always limited to exist within a perfected realm of ideals. Indeed, they give it some metaphysical or spiritual reality. I see God simply as a variety of abstract concepts. The key difference is that abstract concepts do not cannot interact with the world as an agent. Mathematics provides a model of the world that we employ for our understanding of the world, and this model shouldn't be confused with the reality. It helps us to understand. That is what the mathematics model does. To elaborate a little on these terms here, my feelings about the philosophical foundations of mathematics are that mathematical ideas are formal and abstract constructions, perhaps even little more than useful fictions. And mathematics is what emerges from examining them through various lenses we call logics. Yes, plural, logics. My experience in mathematics, in which I hold a doctoral degree, leads me toward this view, and I extend that thinking to abstract notions in the broader world, including science, and, critically, theology. In contrast, mathematical Platonists following Plato's philosophy give meaningful reality to abstractions some even believing that they constitute the true underlying nature of reality. 
Plato spoke about a realm of ideals in which the perfect forms of all things exist with everything in the real world being mere shadows of these ideal forms. For me, the problem is that this realm itself doesn't exist in the same way that, say, mountains and tables exist. Mental stuff depends upon and exists only in minds. So there are also abstract ideals like liberty and justice, and even numbers that cannot be tied to physical objects. For instance, we don't look out in the world and say, oh, look at that beautiful number three over there sitting in the shade of the tree. Numbers are abstract. At the pinnacle of the ideals is the one, the ideal of goodness, described by Neoplatonists. The one is the primeval source of being, also known as the infinite, it is said to be the source of all life and therefore absolute causality and the only real existence. This abstraction is the philosophical underpinning of the Christian God, elevated from Yahweh, battle god of the desert. And thus the entire God concept embraced by the largest religious positions in the world. Infinity is tied up in this ideal, perhaps inextricably, and it is my informed opinion on the matter that this is folly. So what we're going to do now is get acquainted with how the philosophy of the formal mathematics get us to infinity. And it begins at the very beginning with basic counting. This is critical background to grasp. Now, one of the first things to understand is formal mathematics simply doesn't change once established. Once the axioms at the foundations are agreed upon, a mathematical proof is, in a sense, a timeless thing. It always works. So, in the beginning, there were things, and there were no people to count them. After time, there were people who could benefit by counting those things. So, the people abstracted, and they invented numbers so that they might count the things. Whether the people realized it or not, the numbers they counted with were not the things themselves. And neither did those numbers exist independently as things in themselves. Though the number of the things they had to count were frequently quite limited, the people realized that it is conceptually possible to have more things. So, adding another thing therefore seemed, in principle, like something that could be done at any time, if only another thing were to be had, and so they abstracted again. They created the concept of a successor, the abstract idea of a next-counting number, Though many centuries lay between its conception and its formal description, the people had already abstracted far enough to have divorced the concept of number from the objects they numbered, and so numbers took on an existence of their own, an abstract, non-physical existence. Numbers could be applied to any sort of objects. They were useful, and it was good. A problem exists at the heart of this simple story, however. It's an accurate enough myth to describe the birth of systems of numbering, but the problem is that numbers as abstract objects of their own kind, which is to say as mental objects, 
are not constrained by questions of physical reality. Well, on the face of it, this is hardly a problem set against their utility. It holds no effective weight against counting, for instance. But when the unfettered abstract notion of number is combined with the unhindered abstract concept of successorship, a very hard question naturally arises, spawning a concept that is often used and misused and that appears to be paradoxical to the core. This concept is infinity, the boundlessness that captures the idea that we know that no counting number can accurately be called the largest. As abstractions, they do not depend on actual things to count and thus all have a successor that is larger. Well, dealing with this issue requires us to be quite formal in our treatment of mathematics, a rather new invention given how long we've been counting things. The first real formalization that I want to discuss is alluded to just above. The set of fundamental assumptions called the piano axioms, that is P-E-A-N-O, now, so these are going to be the basis of the philosophy of mathematics. They're called piano axioms. These define our theory of numbers. They are named for the Italian mathematician Giuseppe Piano, who devised them in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, so not, not that long ago. So my intention will be to keep this part brief and light, but some introduction of terms is clearly going to be necessary. In fact, we need to start by understanding the term axiom. Axioms are simply statements that are taken to have been accepted to be self-evidently true, and axioms are starting places for our ability to reason. In other words, these are statements for which no proof is given for them, not least because they are the statements upon which proofs will be constructed. Well, another way to put this is that axioms are the statements upon which abstractly defined structures are based. And it is fair to say that axioms, in fact, are the presumptions that allow us to reason logically about matters of interest to us in the first place. So because they are presumptions, it is generally accepted, it's a rule of thumb, that parsimony, meaning the acceptance of as few assumptions as are absolutely necessary, is desirable in constructing axiomatic systems. So these are abstract structures, and what these do is they arise when we apply logic to the axioms. So that axioms are exempted from proof is a matter that is easily and frequently taken out of context, often applying the term faith inappropriately when doing so. Axioms are, again, statements that are accepted to be self-evidently true which is a long way from being statements that are simply dreamed up. We exert judgment on the worth of an axiom by the degree that we might consider it self-evidently true. Sometimes we have a good insight here. Sometimes we must consider these matters carefully based upon the resulting framework of truths 
that emerge from the axioms themselves. These frameworks, called axiomatic systems, are the only places where we have proofs of mathematical or philosophical certainty. So, the kind of certainty that we call mathematical is always held in relationship to a collection of underlying axioms. An example that is quite famous in this regard is that of the parallel postulate of Euclidean geometry. Now, this is usually expressed in terms of slightly the stronger statement called Playfair's axiom. Here it is. Given a line and a point not on it, at most one parallel line to the given line can be drawn through the point. So, this axiom, along with the other axioms of geometry, they define Euclidean, that is, flat space geometry, the kind most of us learn about first as children. So, Playfair's axiom does not hold for curved spaces, though. So, using it as a fundamental axiom of geometry restricts us from being able to develop geometric systems for curved spaces, and this is a major hindrance. Flat spaces may seem self-evident, particularly in Euclid's day 2300 years ago. But we actually have to have geometry that deals with curved space in our reality. So, giving them self-evidential status cannot hold. We have a choice of accepting the axiom to derive truths that apply only to flat spaces. And now, don't make a mistake, this is extremely useful for practical application. It's also much simpler. Or we can reject it, and we have to deal with a broader logical framework for geometry. And we actually end up doing both. Simply specify which paradigm we're working within is how we usually do it. So, axioms then are presumed and can be chosen or rejected, and yet the axioms are not arbitrary. When they do a poor job of matching with reality, or they preclude us from having the abstract toolkit we need to work with reality, we then develop other axiomatic systems to account for that situation. Now, both mathematics and philosophy, then, they're not monolithic structures based upon diverse collections of various axiomatic frameworks developed and chosen for their utilities. The number theory mentioned at the beginning in the mythological language is one such example. Let's look at this a little closer now. The piano axioms can be used to lay out the foundations of number theory. How does this number theory thing work? And this is how objects can be enumerated, whether they exist or not. The concept that each number defined by the piano axioms has a successor is itself part of those piano axioms. Now, this seems very natural and self-evident. What it's stating, actually, is however many things we have, we can conceive of the idea of adding another, even if we were to know that in the physical universe 
there isn't another thing to add. So, of course, considering the previous sentence, we could digress into endless and the most fruitless postmodern discussions about what self-evident really means, if in reality we couldn't add another thing even if we wanted, but we don't need to do that. In principle, the notion of always another hardly offends our better sense. And in the abstract, there's no limitation that would prevent it. So, this idea presents an issue, though. The issue is that we cannot say that the numbers ever stop, even if there are no physical objects to count with them. No matter the value we have at hand, by the piano axioms, there is another number larger than it, and it's called its successor. So, this resulting concept of limitlessness is also an abstraction. The abstract notion of being without limit in quantity, we call that concept infinite, superficially means not finite. So, abstractly, this means, this seems to make some sense, but physically, it might not make sense. Already, then, we find an idea defined by yet another axiom that we can hardly call self-evident. So that makes these matters tricky. That's why I'm going slow on this. As an aside, note that some religious apologists, notably the Christian apologist William Lane Craig, are fond of trying to adhere to this conception of infinity as a quality of unboundedness not a quantity. However, inextricably, the notion of quantity is tied to infinity. In doing so, Craig is in some surprising good company. Archimedes, the ancient Greek scientist, rejected the notion of infinity being a quantity, stating that infinite collections of things do not exist. An anti-theist philosopher and historian Richard Carrier who attacks Craig's work, rather sharply and effectively also claims the Archimedean principle that there are no actual infinities, meaning infinite quantities, instead of the unbounded potential for more. While a relatively small branch of mathematicians called either finitists or ultra-finitists also hold this view, most mathematicians, though, tend not to think of infinity so concretely like this. Abstractions can be abstract. Well, as it turns out, the piano axioms can also be used to allow us to develop a way of describing collections of objects. These are known as sets. You have three different colored balls. That is a set of balls. The collection of objects, usually abstract objects, are in many cases known as sets. So, the question about whether or not there is an infinite set, like the set of all of the counting numbers, immediately arises from the piano axioms. But, as it turns out, the piano axioms do not equip us to be able to answer this question. This fact was not known for a long time, during which these matters presented some major challenges to mathematicians. People abstracted again, though, and an axiom called the axiom of infinity was proposed. This axiom directly leads to the idea 
that there exists at least one infinite set, an actual infinity. The piano axioms seem to predict this axiom, and yet the set theory they produce refutes it. We're getting into deep waters pretty quick here. In the late 19th century, mostly driven by limitations arising in analysis, the theoretical foundations of calculus, this question about whether or not to accept the axiom of infinity came to a head. They were arguing in the calculus over infinitesimals, were those even real or not? One mathematician, George Cantor, who is now famous for it is able to work with the notion of infinity in a new and coherent way. Now, it was highly controversial, of course. It took several decades, and David Hilbert actually had to come and endorse Cantor before it gained some measure of acceptance. Cantor's ideas laid the groundwork that quantified infinity. As a result, it also gave mathematicians the toolkit. Through a complete reformulation of set theory by Ernst Zermelo and Abraham Frankel to solve many of the long-standing problems in mathematical analysis. It is on this basis that the majority of mathematicians today accept the Zermelo-Frankel axioms of set theory, within yet another additional axiom added to it, which we'll talk about. To be clear, the Zermelo-Frankel axioms explicitly include the axiom of infinity. So, this axiom accepts infinity as a basis for quantity. So, putting firm, if abstract, footing under the quantitative nature of infinity bore many consequences. Among these, one of the most famous is that infinity is not a one-size-fits-all concept, a question over which there was much contention, some of it quite bitter. Before Cantor's work was accepted, Cantor was able to show that if we postulate at least one infinite set, then we necessarily get more sizes of infinity. For instance, the infinity that describes the size of the natural numbers is smaller than the infinity that describes the size of the real numbers. Indeed, he showed that given any infinite set, it is possible to create an infinite set that is properly larger. The immediate consequence here, as with the successorship property of numbers, is that if we have one size of infinity, then we have infinitely many sizes of infinity. And it was later shown that the infinity that tells us the size of the counting numbers is the smallest infinity. And slightly ironically, and yet meaningfully, this size is known as countable infinity. All other larger sizes of infinity are collectively known as uncountable infinities. I mean, this is getting really interesting quick, isn't it? And yet again, a question that there are infinitely many infinities, we have to ask, which one tells us how many infinities there are? Stunningly, the answer is that we can't know 
without making additional assumptions beyond even those of Zermelo Frankel. So this fact comes to us from another famous name, Kurt Girdle, who was able to prove in 1940 that given any axiomatic system that can produce arithmetic, we have to choose between completeness and coherence. Completeness means that the truth value of every statement in the system is determinable. That is, that all statements can be assigned the appropriate truth value, which is usually either true or false for us. On the other hand, coherence means that there are no contradictory statements, which is to say, no paradoxes within the system. We can have one or the other, but except in very special cases that have little applicability, we cannot have both. Well, Cantor's work in the 1870s is what motivated Girdle's, which itself wasn't even completed in this regard until Paul Cohen put it all together in 1963. So for many decades, these ideas were highly contentious because not only did we not know the answers to some apparently fundamental questions, we didn't know that we couldn't know. In the intervening time, a lot of dil diligent work was done pursuing various avenues related to the field, and a very important concept was determined to be intimately related to the question at the center of the sizes of infinity controversy. This important concept is known as the axiom of choice. What is this? The axiom of choice states that if we have an infinite collection of sets of indistinguishable objects, each containing at least one object, then we can choose exactly one object from each set. Now, as a quick reminder, that grossly oversimplifies a set in mathematics can be understood to be a collection of objects, and they're usually abstract objects. So, a loose way, a very loose way to conceive of the idea of the axiom of choice is to imagine we have an infinite number of drawers, each containing any non-zero number of indistinguishable balls. The axiom says that we are able to make a collection of balls by choosing exactly one ball from every drawer. Now, this seems uncontroversial, right? Perhaps because for the majority of the examples we might think of at first, there is some selection scheme. Using sets of whole numbers, we might select the smallest value. Using balls, we might imagine taking the ball closest to the front left corner of the drawer. The problem doesn't exist in those cases, though, and so that's not what the axiom is referring to. The problem arises when we do not have a selection criterion. In the example, the balls are all taken to be indistinguishable so as to give the idea that we've eliminated the possibility of a choice function that would tell us how to choose each ball from its drawer. Since there are infinitely many drawers and no specified collection mechanism, how could we be sure that we were able to choose some specific infinite collection of balls? We cannot go through each drawer one by one because we're never going to finish. 
And we can't draw them all out at once because we don't have a scheme by which to do it. So as it turns out, we need an axiom that says we can do it essentially because we say so. This axiom was considered to be highly controversial until quite recently, when most mathematicians gradually started to accept it because it allows us to produce useful mathematical results. So it does have some uncomfortable consequences, however, that we'll discuss later in another podcast. Well, this matter was settled recently enough so that it is still somewhat common to hear today's mathematicians explicitly point out when they are using the axiom of choice. So when the axiom of choice is added to the Zermelo-Frankel axioms of set theory, the resulting framework which is abbreviated ZFC for Zermelo-Frankel plus choice, this provides the concept, the context, for modern mathematical set theory, and it's the predominantly accepted axiomatic mathematical framework. It goes far beyond the scope to get into this particular topic much more deeply, except the need to introduce a few more terms, and then the story of infinity is essentially told. I would like to point out, however, that the very humanness of all of this, since my ultimate purpose here is to discuss how these ideas relate to other conceptions called God, other ideas utterly covered in human fingerprints. A point that is illustrated to some degree here is that regardless of what Platonists want to believe about ideals or realms of forms and the underlying nature of reality, a very strong case can be made that human beings are the ones fashioning logic and logical axiomatic systems as mental tools through which we aim to better understand our world. So on some level, Platonists believe just the opposite, that abstractions determine a fundamental reality and that we're merely discovering those real abstractions as we go along. So instead of getting into the weeds now, here we find an excellent place to recap where we've already been and a moment to reinforce this new terminology without making hopefully any more complex than it already is, because this rabbit hole goes very deep and it gets weird. So that's why I'm laying this foundation in this podcast. We started only with the need to count things. Then we noticed that because in principle, even if not in practice, we can always add another thing. We abstracted the idea of successors to that thing. Well, both of these ideas, numbers along with successorship, taken as abstractions upon reality, this led us to formalize ideas known as the piano axioms, which predict but deny the axiom of infinity when applied to set theory. A reformulation known as the Zermelo-Frankel axioms of set theory accepts the axiom of infinity, and so it lets us answer many questions, although other questions lurk at the heart of what arises, not least what an infinite tower of infinities could possibly mean. 
Of particular note, the axiom of choice that allows us to select from infinitely many non-empty bins is generally accepted. Only lately, as a foundational part of set theoretical mathematics, and the resulting framework is abbreviated ZFC. And we have all of this because we recognize that our little old counting numbers are abstractions in the first place. So this is the basis with which I want to begin to seriously get into uh, infinity and God. And I'll give it to you in bite-sized chunks, about a half hour each podcast. And you can listen to them as many times as you want. But once we begin to get into the theological construction and the contradictions and see the really intense, fascinating world of the abstract infinities, it's going to blow your mind. And it's going to demonstrate serious problems with our concepts as humans about the eternal God world. Now, this is James Lindsay's viewpoint. I have other viewpoints I'll share, but I want to give him his say. David Deutsch also has some magnificently interesting ideas on infinity. So thank you for listening to the new BYP podcasts. I will return with number four. This seems like it's number three already. So we're coming along good and we are climbing into the mountain of God, so to speak, (laughs) metaphorically with our abstract understandings of infinity. And we will see where it goes. So be good to all have fun, make lots of friends, sleep well, and I will see you in the next BYP Podcasts.